This is the Relevant Podcast. It's Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021, and it's the Relevant Podcast. Here in Orlando, I'm your host, Cameron Strang, and joining me from Loverland, Virginia, it's Jesse Carey. Hello, hello. From Nashville, Tennessee, Relevant Senior Editor Tyler Huckabee. Hey, everybody. He is sitting in for Jamie Ivey, who, uh, as of this recording session, has no power because of the winter storm in Texas. So Tyler sitting in for today's show. And also from Nashville, just down the street from Tyler, uh, artist, producer, mogul, Derek Miner. What up, though? We have a great show in store for you today. Coming up, uh, an important show, I'll say. Coming up later, we talked to author and attorney Rachel Denhollander. She uh, wrote the book, uh, What is a Girl Worth? She's an advocate for victims of sexual abuse. She is actually involved in uh, the fallout from the investigation into the allegations uh, to uh, the late Ravi Zacharias that we've been reporting on at Relevant and it's kind of rocked the church world um, of the sexual impropriety and things that have been coming out in the investigation. She's actually involved in the next steps of that. She's a leader in this um, discussion about ministry and sexual abuse and power and cover up. And we talk to her about all of that coming up later on the show. So it's, it's an important one. Her work, you know, has been so critical and we've seen her, you know, be such an important voice with, um, you know, exposing the years of abuse with USA Gymnastics and and Larry Nassar. And she was, uh, you know, such an important, uh, you know, advocate for survivors of abuse, but also with her legal background um, and her her kind of um upbringing in the church and church communities, you know, she's really developed a powerful voice for, uh, you know, accountability, but as well as how, you know, not just keeping large institutions and ministries in this case accountable and their leaders accountable, but also setting up, um, you know, institutional safeguards to prevent this type of abuse from happening. Because, you know, the, the thing with Ravi Zacharias, it's, I mean, it is absolutely sickening and it completely, um, you know, obviously the first in, in thoughts and, and concerns are with the victims of absolutely. his abuse, but it's also, you know, just a terrifying indictment on, you know, quote unquote, Christian leaders ability to allow these this type of abuse to happen and to not listen to victims i mean we've seen it over and over again with with churches with you know um with large institutions that choose to not listen to victims choose to protect predators and you know as terrible as the situation with ravi zacharias and his ministry is it's it's also not all that surprising because when you build ministries around you know, essentially, to some degree, cults of personalities, you allow those individuals to get away with horrible, horrible things. And I'm so grateful for Rachel's work and exposing it. For the listeners who don't quite know who Ravi is and stuff, and honestly, up until, you know, the last decade, I, I would be among those. He Ravi was a huge uh, figure in certain streams of the church, but not others. And 
And uh, his ministry was a major apologetics ministry, he wrote countless books, um, you know, making a case for the gospel. He lectured, he debated, he, he was the Christian voice that was accepted in academia. He was on the stage of, you know, the Ivy League schools and had a massive international following of, uh, of resources to help Christians evangelize and share the gospel. Um, it, when he passed away last year, uh, there was a little bit of a cloud uh, uh, around that because in 2017, uh, a, a, a lady uh, uh, came forward with the allegation of sexual impropriety uh, via a texting relationship with Ravi. It was swept under the rug. There was a settlement. She signed an NDA and it was billed as somebody trying to, uh, uh, you know, exploit the ministry or get money. Um, it, that's how it was excused. After his death, other uh, people came forward, uh, particularly people who worked at massage parlors. He had a bad back. He would travel with massage therapists. He actually invested in two different uh, massage uh, stores in addition to running the ministry. And, and it started to come to light that there was also murmurs of inappropriate sexual conduct in those environments. And so the ministry, after his death in the last few months, and uh, had an independent investigation by a law firm, uh, talk to do all these interviews and go through his phones and everything. And the report came out last week. We've reported on it at relevant and it was jarring. And I'm not, I'm not sensationalizing this. There are countless victims, uh, countless uh, proven inappropriate sexual relationships around the world, primarily with massage therapists that he uh, was with because of his bad back. But then he would, in the in the report, details how he would um, kind of groom them and 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 cross the line with them. There is uh, the report uh, talks about a situation where he raped a woman. Uh, I told Tyler, this is the first time I've ever heard of all the scandals going back to the televangelists in the eighties of all the major church scandals. It's the first time I'm ever, I can recall hearing one uh, that included a criminal accusation of rape. Um, So it's, it's the most horrific report. And at relevant, we take this incredibly seriously. I mean, just like we covered Moral failings of people who have had our platform. I mean, we've covered Ravi over the years. We published his his teachings. We've likewise covered Carl Lentz and others that have had you know public failings, and and we feel obligated to tell the full story if we've published them. Obviously, we're not trying to look for gory details, but you know we feel that we need to learn from this. We need to we need to be honest. We need to be transparent. We need to learn from this collectively. And and so as we've been covering it at Relevant, when we talked about today's episode of the podcast, it's like. There's nobody better to talk to than Rachel, because to me, it's not really let's talk about Ravi. It's not that it's what do we do as a generation moving forward, taking the forefront in the church? What do we do to prevent this from happening? Like how, what do we need to do and advocate for as far as accountability, as far as transparency and authenticity from our leaders? What what, what do we do to keep this secret life thing because it is a pattern in the prominent church world circles where these guys will kind of create these ivory towers they get isolated and then a secret life thing comes in and my thing and and i think this is the conversation that we want to have with rachel and the thing that the church needs to be talking about is what do we learn from this let's be honest about it let's obviously advocate for the victims and stand up for those who were silenced frankly over the last few years but also moving forward 
how can we prevent the next situation like this from happening? And that's you know, what Rachel one of, brings to the One of my mentors today. said, he said this and it hit me. This was back when I first started, uh, when I first started getting serious about my faith. He said, um, knowing is not growing. And the Christian church has this, is enamored with smart people. And I think that that's the issue. Hmm. Um, the Christian church is so enamored with someone who's well studied that when you look at David, like we go to the scriptures, you look at David, you look at Abraham, you look at Isaac, you look at Jacob, even as, as wild as Jacob was, the thing that made them who they were was their faith. It, it it was their character. It was their ability to, in the middle of doing, like even David, in the middle of, like, when when <laughs> he tried to hide and when he was exposed, he uh, ran to the Most High. You mm. know what I'm saying? It was mm. a character of, like, obviously, no one's perfect, but there's a thing that we have, or the, the Christian church is going to have to shift the 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 focus from knowledge to character that is what's missing that is what's missing because when i look at a lot of these select like a celebrity doesn't have to have good character all you have to do is like a celebrity that's it you know like when you look at the top celebrities you just have to like them and they, and those celebrities will be protected as long as they're employing people, right? So as long as people will justify it and say, well, I can either, we can either expose this guy and then all of our lives go down with him or, you know, um, we just hide and tuck it under the rug and just hope he gets better. But I think the Christian church is going to have to move to a more character base. I don't necessarily care how deep a pastor is at understanding prophecies or Zeph or reading like prophecies and all that stuff. I'm like, I just want to know that when you counsel with me and my wife, that you're not trying to sleep with my wife behind my back. Hmm. Like that, that is higher on my list than your understanding of theology. And I think that we're going to have to move because theology is not developing just knowing theology doesn't develop character if that makes sense i know that sounds that's very counterintuitive because we're taught the more theology you know the better of a person you're going to know this guy was an apologetics mastermind with the worst character so if this is not an example of knowing is not growing i don't know what is and i think that's the issue with the christian church just in general the hypocrisy is crazy like you're able to spout off all these different things that you know about the bible but don't have any of the practical things in practice i think that that uh, until that shift happens from from knowledge to character is going to be a you're going to see more of these and the other thing too is the 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 money. I'll just be honest with you, because yeah. like aside from just you know the the knowledge side of things, so many like faith leaders with their you know are great personalities and they attract big crowds and big the ministries swell up to be these huge businesses. I mean, you, you know, think of I mean, I'll be honest, Jerry Falwell Jr. at Liberty or yeah. or any megachurch you can think of you don't mess with the golden goose, you know, like if we, if we held this person accountable for what we know behind the scenes, then, Oh no, then it all comes crashing down. I'll lose my job. And so you're not incentivized to, 
to hold anybody accountable. You just want to keep the status quo and like, let's hope he works this out. Let's hope he works through this. He's just having a tough season right now. You know what I mean? And it's like, you're just trying to keep the the money flowing. And, and that's, that's to me the, the, the super dangerous thing because, and two, and then let's, let's flip this to the, to the pastor who's trapped in this double life. You know, they're mm-hmm. miserable. Mm-hmm. What are they going to mm-hmm. do? They can't talk to mm-hmm. anybody. Yeah. They can't get help because they're going to be right. removed and lose everything. And That's so right. they're incentivized to keep their mouth shut and keep the double life going and they're trapped. And then when you, so it's, it's a horrible situation on both sides because of this kind of like American, you know, money driven Christian economy that we have yeah. that is now the church world. And I don't yeah. know what the solution is. Well, and not yeah. only that too, maybe, maybe this is, and, and this is an indictment on anyone who it applies to directly, but I, but I don't feel like this is an unfair statement. Maybe we should revisit the whole idea of big ministries named after flawed people. Right. Like, why can't why can't it be called God's word ministry or apologetics today? Not Ravi Zacharias ministry. When you put someone's name in front of ministry and ask people for money, you're you are opening the door for that person to have a dangerous amount of power. You know, you wonder how someone like Ravi Zacharias was able to use, you know, a lot of different power dynamics, but including spiritual manipulation, everyone was comfortable with him having this giant building and uh, this giant thing with his name all over it. That's look, man. It, it, th- th- this there. It's one thing if you're an artist or, or an author and you your identity is is tied closely to your work. You know right. what I mean? Like it's another thing if you're running something that says your name ministry. Okay, that, because I, I think you can make a case. That might be a little counterintuitive because ministry isn't about one person, right? Ministry isn't about a brand. Ministry is is the Great Commission. Ministry is the gospel. It's making disciples. It's helping people. It's helping people who are suffering. You know, the the the, the whole thing is just you know so upsetting. But also, okay, this is is happening all the time. Like, what are some steps? And, and I'm glad Rachel's on to, to kind of talk about her experiences with kind of establishing some of these steps. But yeah. even just from a large cultural perspective, how can we rein in so, some of what we what we see with these big ministries that are more cults? They're more about the personality than they are about God in a lot of. Yeah. I mean, that's I really that, struggle. Yeah, I, I really struggle with it, Jesse. Like, I mean, just even as an artist myself that has made a lot of money within Christian circles, like I, I'm up front. I don't I don't consider my raps to be a ministry. I just don't. It's a business. I am a rapper. Like I'm a rapper that talks about faith. That's what it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's the distinction because like, <laughs> you know, and you're not claiming to be, you know, somebody's pastor. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and, you, and, you're, and you're a for-profit asking, business and we, yeah. we're a Christian company, but we're not a ministry. We're a for-profit business. Like I just really wish some of these pastors would just be like, I'm a motivational speaker. Yeah. Like that's fine. Yeah. Like, bro, that that is absolutely fine. If you like, yo, I'm a motivational speaker or I'm a thought leader on apologetics. I ain't no pa- like, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, there's like, I, I really wish. Like, I feel like, I, and I, I felt like this about a lot. I'm like, man, some of these guys are like really, really great entrepreneurs that should just be entrepreneurs as opposed to pastors. Because pastor has it's a spiritual element to that. Like, you're yeah. dealing with 
lives and all those different things, man. Like there needs to be this. But then also at the same time, the question is, do some of these ministries get as big if the pastor's just like, I'm a motivational speaker, right? Well, because people are enamored with this idea of the spiritual guru who is speaking uh, quote unquote life or, or, you know what I mean? So I'm like, right, I don't right. know. It's a, it, I, I don't know, Cameron. I don't know what to do either with it. <laughs> I was going to say, you look at like what, what is like a non church sort of like analog for Like if you look like, like at a Gary V or like a Tony yeah. Robbins or one of these guys, it's like, yeah, they, they're putting themselves in positions where they probably have a lot of, of power and that can be dangerous, but they're not putting themselves in a position where it's spiritual manipulation as well because yeah. they're not claiming to represent anything spiritual. They're claiming, to your point, Derek, to be entrepreneurs, motivational speakers. That's fine. If you want, if that is your approach and brand yourself however you want to brand yourself, that, you know, I understand that. But when you slap ministry behind it, there's a different connotation and there's a spiritual element that kind of insinuates, you know, whether consciously or, uh, or unconsciously, that that person is a gateway to, you know, a deeper level of spirituality and faith in God. And that's where I feel like it gets dangerous. And just, and just to make clear what Ravi did, it, 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 it's out of bounds, even for the Gary V. Like, it's not like, yeah. oh, it's awful because he was a pat. No, it's awful because you're a human being doing this to other human beings like you know what i'm saying like it's not it's not as though like oh well he should just took the pastor off of it and then it would have been okay like it's like nah but i think it's just there's just a deeper it just feels like there's an even deeper level of wound when it's someone that you like pastor breeds trust in a way that you know no one else does i besides maybe parent <laughs> it's like parent it's like pastor parent you know what i mean or parent pastor it, 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 you know what i mean so it's just it, it, it's just really it really upset me i wasn't really i didn't i don't know much i didn't know much about ravi yeah i mean besides what people right. um you know around me knew but man it's just but, but it's, he was instrumental in leading so, uh, millions of people to the lord and was so formative and i mean andy minio talks about i mean you know when yeah. ravi passed andy talked about how instrumental he was to his own and, and Lecrae too talked about how instrumental he was to his own faith and formation and all that and stuff. And it's like my, my heart breaks for what yeah. these guys, what the, what the people who, who came to Christ because of him feel betrayed. The same thing when, when it happened with Carl, I mean, all the people that came to the Lord because of the gospel that Carl Lynch shared at Hillsong and then to find out, you know, it's like, what does that, and, and, and frankly, the report talks about that Ravi used that as spiritual manipulation, just manipulation to some of his victims. He would say, That's you what need to I was keep your mouth say. shut yep. because you don't want to cause these people to lose their faith. And it's just like, what? One, one like two minute, two minute thing that uh, I think is worth pointing out here. When right after Ravi's death, we at Relevant, did, there was an immediately a push for Lorraine Thompson, the first woman to come forward with these accusations against Ravi Zacharias, which have now been confirmed, uh, saying she wanted to be released from her NDA to talk more about this. And we at Relevant wrote that up, reported on it, uh, received a lot of really heated comments about uh, this man just died. Uh, why would you talk about this right now when the like the, the give give the family some peace and rest? And I, I, I know people, we want to be respectful. Obviously, that's part of our job. But I also want to be mindful of how often 
women are told now is not the right time for you to bring this up. Think about the, think about the family, think about the respect, think about the industry, the legacy. And I don't think everybody who says these things is trying to be manipulative or is, or thinks of themselves as silencing victims. But every time you do that, the message that's being presented to victims everywhere, not just the person who's trying to speak up, but everywhere is nobody cares what you have to say. You, what happened to you is not as important as the reputation, the legacy, the whatever. And this doesn't have to be about what we wrote at Relevant. That's not what I'm trying mm. to make it about. I'm trying to make it about the fact that we need to be, this is a lesson that we, especially as a church, have been taught over and over again, but we have not learned. You have to give space for the people who tell these stories to feel safe to say them out loud. That doesn't mean you have to necessarily presume that every single thing is true, but you've got, we've got to find out, we've got to figure out how to do a better job of being respectful and open when these people come forward with these stories and not make them these these second tier citizens behind these great men of the faith whose right. reputations are so important that the bad things right. they may or may not have done don't matter. That That is That's just right. really, really infuriating. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, normally we have a little silly banter at the front of the show. <laughs> not this week. Stay tuned. Up next, speaking of silly, it's Slices. You're listening to Blue the Tiger. The song is Vintage. Well, today's show is brought to you by BetterHelp. Uh, counseling is such an important thing, especially right now. People are feeling isolated, alone, struggling with things because there aren't the usual distractions in life. It's a hard season for so many, and counseling is a vital uh, component to help you through it. Let's do a mental health check-in, everybody. How are you really? What do you need right now? Therapy can help. Now, what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. You can get some tools to help with motivation or depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity and relationships at work, past trauma, whatever you need. It's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours and you can message them anytime and schedule one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings as well. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about with BetterHelp. See if it's for you because you are your greatest asset. Uh, right now, Relevant Podcast listeners will get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash relevant. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash relevant. All right, it's time for Slices. I don't know. I think we need to update that one. Maybe maybe we need to update that little intro, Clark. The rapier hasn't been used since <laughs> in quite a while. So. Uh, all right, what do you have, Jesse? All right, so I have a, a slice. I feel like everyone can probably relate to this. Um, uh, just around the table right now, how how many how, did any of you guys spend more than five minutes getting ready this morning? I'm just talking about your physical, your appearance. Are you including brushing the teeth? No. Putting on no. deodorant? 
No, no, just, just putting like, clothes on, like clothes appearance. on, and and any sort of preparation for you know that type of thing for not, appearance. It was not five minutes, fourteen seconds. I mean, yeah, okay, well, the well, up. I mean, like, yeah, four. well, you're not alone because in the Zoom era, a lot of people are are dressing differently. And a recent study uh, looked at how how our different dressing habits have actually impacted our productivity. Um, so the the study initially looked at do people perform differently when they're dressed nice. Uh, it shouldn't be surprising that people were more productive the more formal, the, the more formally they dressed, the more productive they were during the workday. Hmm. However, that that it wasn't necessarily like it means you're not a good worker if you dress more casually because they actually found that when people dress more casually, it, it, it helps them on the creative side. So if you dress kind of casually, you get kind of more creative and fun. If you're dressed more formally, you're more kind of locked in and productive. No problem there. What 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 happened is uh, well they were able to identify uh, they they have actually a term it's called enclosed cognition. So basically, your clothes sort of influencing your mood and your behaviors. Now uh, there was a a a interesting thing that they found the the folks at Columbia University when they started digging into this a little and they wanted to understand you know now that we know when you dress formally and you dress casually what happens what happens when you come to work and what they deemed the zoo. Zoom mullet, which means party up top, <laughs> get a little, get or, or formal business up top. on the top, mm-hmm. yeah, business, business up top. top, and party down below. We've yeah. all seen it. You're yeah. wearing a, a a blazer with sweat with flannel sweatpants, if any pants at all, right? Like sure. Zoom, you can look nice up top on on screen and wear whatever you want from the waist down. So they wanted to find, well, what happens then if you mix formal and casual? What does it do to productivity? Well, it actually has some pretty bad effects, thanks to a a phenomenon called enclosed dissidence, which means your body doesn't actually know whether it should be more productive or more creative. And it creates a lot of confusion. And actually, you lower your creativity and your productivity when you go to work with a Zoom mullet. So moral of the story is in this... Yeah, exactly. Either go <laughs> full casual or full uh-huh. formal, because if you mix them both, you're actually hurting your creativity and productivity, which, by the way, what a great study. There are so many weird studies at these universities. They're just finding weird stuff to study. This is what I actually cared about. Like, yeah. uh, this is g- legitimately interesting to me. You know, I mean, like, like to be honest, like when when you, you Jesse and Tyler have worked remote for relevant for for many, many, many years. And so when we all went remote a year ago with covid. I asked you guys directly, like, what do you do? <laughs> like, like, what do you do to like show up for work? Like, cause to me, I was like rolling out of bed and turning on my computer. That was it, you know? Yeah. And you both told me, Tyler, you especially told me you go get dressed and like you dress for work and then go to work in the other room or whatever. And I was like, nah, that's so dumb. Why would, who cares? And then. Yeah. Now I'm getting it. I, get I put it. on shoes. Like I, I put on shoes sometimes. You're know, like I wear jeans, shoes, whole deal, just to feel like I'm more in work mode. You know, fascinating. All right, what do you have, Derek? Yo, so um, everybody I know remembers the uh, GameStop lottery roller coaster we were on a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Well, Derek, Derek I- did you read? I read this after the fact that those viral stocks, the Reddit stocks, the GameStop, AMC primarily, there might have been another one. I read that 23% of Americans put money into one of those stocks that week. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Twenty-three percent of Americans try to do that get rich quick score. It's serious. And That's the, crazy. And, the, and you asked, and remember you guys asked me, you were like, yo, so did you do anything? And I said, no. And here's the reason why. There's a student, I think uh, the guy, 25 years old, security guard, he uh, took out, so he had money in, in his long-term account, 50000 and he didn't want to touch it. So good for him, smart man. But instead, he takes out a $20,000 loan with 11% interest. No. Puts it in a GameStop. And he's down 80% on it. Oh, man. So, you know, and, and the crazy mm. part is that's not uncommon. And I was I was telling someone, like, people were like, yo, this is a, you know, fight against the system. The little man is winning. And I'm like, no, the little man does never wins in big money games. Uh, right. The house always wins. Well, people, and this is were, one of the reasons why. There were people that made money, to be For fair, sure. the very, very first people. And I heard somebody say this after the fact, and I thought this was so wise. Like, how do you know if you're early enough or if you're too late or whatever, you're going to win or you're going to lose? And somebody said, by the time you hear about it, it's too late. It's too late. It's too late. The early guys were in it. You know what I mean? Like before you ever heard about yes. it, they got out when you heard about it. And that's why I didn't get in it. Bro, when when I saw freaking Ja Rule and Lindsay Lohan <laughs> talking about hold, I was like, oh, this thing is dead. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I was no. Like, I was like, oh, first of all, anything, you know, shout out to Ja Rule. He's one of the, one of, Festival, I mean, he has man. legendary <laughs> songs. But bro, when the Firefest guy is telling you <laughs> to hold your stocks and you're getting financial advice from him, time to cut. It's time to cut and run. Like you're done. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, bro, and there's this story after story. I saw a guy down 13 million. I saw someone down a million. Like it, it, it. And I think that's what was happening is people were yoloing, you know, money that they didn't have. Yeah. On margin accounts or yeah. taking out loans, and that's a, and I'm saying this because people know I'm really, really passionate about financial literacy, and I just want to bring that example up because I'm like, please do not YOLO your life savings yeah. on Bitcoin or it's something seems, like that. You know, it seems like there was like a lesson there in the GameStop thing that was people. Some people were trying to kind of prove early on, like, look how like magic the system is, how it's all, once you pull back the curtain, it's a bunch well, of smoke and mirrors back there. Which like I understand, casino, if that's your though. point, there's value yeah. to like reminding us of the like kind of fragile, how fragile the economy is. But if you think that you're going to be able to flip the grift and be like, well, we can trade, we can, we can redirect this energy towards our own enrichment. You haven't even learned your own lesson. You haven't yeah, learned right. the lesson Absolutely. you're trying to prove, which is, yeah, which right. is the, the big, the big fish is always going to eat the small fish. And uh, and you can be mad about that. I understand that. I'm mad about it too. But you're not going to change it via GameStop stock wizardry. That's not that. that, no. that that's, Dude, I'm sorry. That's not the magic ticket. If, if you treat the stock market like a casino, the house always wins. There's a always. line in the movie Rounders that when you sit down at a poker table, if you can't um, within one minute spot the sucker, it's you. You, the, the guys who 
are the grinders. They are there for 12-hour shifts. They're the ones who end up winning, not the ones who push it all to the middle to get the quick, big score. You've got to change your mindset about what the stock market is. And what's happened, this is the sad, sad thing I read this week about that, is like these apps like Webull and Robinhood, which I'm a Webull customer, uh, you know, have made retail trading and day trading and options trading very, very accessible. And options trading Mm -hmm. is incredibly dangerous because you're borrowing money. Yes. And there was a 20-year-old Rutgers college student who died by suicide recently, and his family is suing the Robinhood app because his suicide note said that he opened up the Robinhood app one day and his account was negative $270,000. And in his suicide note, he said, how could this app let a 20-year-old college kid with no income have that much credit? This, is ru- this has ruined my life and I'll never be able to get out from it. And it's not worth going on. And he took his own life and his family is suing yes. Robin Hood. And, and that, that's the thing that's absolutely crazy about what's going on right now is the accessibility to the financial systems that were only for the elite and powerful have been you know, democratized. And that's a good thing ultimately, but you've got to be wise. You cannot just go in there and leverage everything. Here's the super sad thing about what happened with that kid. He wasn't $270,000 in the hole. He was reaching out to uh, Robin Hood as he reached out three times, asking them what was going on, how this was possible. And he didn't hear a reply and he took his life. They replied the next day and oh, said, wow. your credit is down $270,000, but not that you owe or have a debt of $270,000. Oh, he goodness. ultimately misunderstood what the app told him and goodness. took his life. And that's why they're being sued by the family. So, I mean, this whole right. thing is very, very scary if you go into it carelessly. Yeah, it's not a game. You know, yeah. I, I, I've been trading actively, like weekly for the past year. And the thing that when you first start, there's a euphoria when you see your money make money. But the thing is, if you're not wise and in control of your emotions, you can lose a lot. Like I've seen people, there's a lot of people, even just in the year that I've been trading, there's people that can't trade anymore because they blew up Mm -hmm. not just their account, but they blew up their life. You know what I mean? Like they put money that they couldn't put down mm-hmm. and you know, like you're right. Like Robin Hood, Webull, a lot of these accounts. And the, the, the crazy thing about it is the rich people know this. Mm. They know, they know, Hey, we just let this ride for a little bit. And then we're mm. going to snatch all them, all these shares back, or we're going to sell all these shares, tank it. And then we're going to buy them all back for a lower, lower rate. You know, mm-hmm. it happens all the time. When you have billions of dollars of buying power, you can move the market. When you have 200 bucks of credit, you can't, you know I mean? It's like, exactly. yeah, it's, it's scary. You're a guppy. Exactly right. All right. What do you have, Tyler? All right. So we're going to do a little uh, behind the scenes relevant investigation here. I'm taking you down. Uh, this is bizarre. It, this is not this is, your lane, uh, Derek, but no, certain I'm listeners. Sorry, Derek. Derek, I'm excited. Wrote, bring me, bring me, into, uh, bring this, me into millennial white this world. This is a very white lane that <laughs> this is Tyler's going down right now. It's extremely white, but, but hopefully <laughs> hopefully it's interesting. You're the target demo for this. Derek. I'm going to try to explain it to you. <laughs> I'm excited. It's going to get everybody interested. All Every right. time this happens, I, I feel like I learn more about just life yeah, in d- general. You're, so you're please just, help me. You're just, you're just at this 
zoo. You're just watching. You're just watching. We're behind the glass. And you just watch and pick up whatever you can. Learning about these people. From what's right, happening? Okay. Um, so it started last week, last Sunday, when uh, a band by the name of Eve Six. Derek, do you know if I say Eve Six? Does this? Do you have any idea? I have no clue. Clark, early two thousands. Clark, could you play pop. a little clip of the Eve Six song that I sent you? Very, very big song in the early 2000s. 15-year-old Tyler with his girlfriend, <laughs> who was just enough older than him to have a car, was very into this song. We drive around the mall parking lot, and this was this was the song. <laughs> this was the jam. All right, this was this song was the movement, and that so that was that was we're talking. Hey, like that late was edgy. 90s. That was secular music. Tyler. It was say, yeah, it was edgy secular music. It was for kids who like practice kick flips in the parking lot. Like, yeah, yeah, tags. exactly. Like, it was very much the skate oh, culture yeah, situation, okay. that sort yeah. of thing. Got you. I remember when and, I first saw Hacky, Hacky Sack, it blew my mind. Yeah, I was like, yeah. Did, okay, so, you know, cool. Pe- people do this. They yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, so Eve Six had kind of a heyday in the mid '90s, one maybe two hit wonder situation, faded out. Have recently kind of come back via Twitter. There, the lead singer is a guy by the name of uh, Max Collins, I believe it is, uh, has become sort of Twitter famous in a way for doing a lot of like kind of trolly tweets, ex- telling stories about the '90s alt rock scene, and he's pretty he's pretty funny on Twitter. He's a decent he's a decent follow, some explicit content, but he tweeted out on Sunday night. Uh, th- this I'll just read the tweet verbatim. What it says is Reliant K on this site. I have a question. So. That's how it fell into the now, relevant. I've before. 15-year-old Tyler's okay. worlds are now converging. Christian pop punk band Reliant K getting asked about by Eve Six. What? A professional curiosity now, right? I've got to get to the bottom of this. So I start, so I start digging in, trying to figure out why. First of all, it's just weird. Like, he didn't tag Reliant K. He didn't search to see if Reliant K had a Twitter handle. He just asked, is Reliant K on the site? I have a question, which is a very presumptive. It's my favorite t- phenomenon that's happening right now. Like Dion Warwick is an amazing yeah. Twitter follow. She's new to Twitter and she is just running the show right now. She's and she at- uses Twitter like Google. She will go, can somebody connect me to Kanye? You know, and then like, like, to be, like then the internet goes and tries yeah, to like get Dion, Dion yeah. Warwick and Kanye talking. And that's what Eve Six did. Yeah. Does anybody know Reliant K? And I was like, what? This isn't how Twitter works. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was like, so it's very strange. And then, and, and I guess they, they can kind of do this. And so I looked into it for them. <laughs> doing the, their work on the house for them. Yes, Reliant K is on Twitter. All the members of Reliant K are also on Twitter. They're pretty active on Twitter, too. And one of them, John Schneck, who is in Reliant K, responds, and he said, I got you. What do you need? And he, the Eve 6 question was just this. I'm trying to recall a story involving the Chainsmokers guy. Do you all talk about Eve 6 in one of your songs? That's that. And the answer is yes, Reliant K does have a song that's about Eve Six. Now, where Chainsmokers came into the picture, I don't really understand. But apparently, Eve Six has a story involving Chainsmokers about a Reliant K song that no, involves no, 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 Eve Six. No, no, no. The Chainsmokers, the tweet to you 
He replied to you yeah. and said, yeah, we're getting there. I was, okay, okay. <laughs> we're getting That's there. where we're I thought Chainsmokers there. came in. All right. Yeah. But at the time, all we knew was that there was a Chainsmokers were involved on some level. Didn't really understand any more than that. But I published the piece anyway. We didn't have all the answers yet, but sometimes you just got to publish what you got. This is a you, straight you, week ago, relevant. It was like a relevant investigation. Uh-huh. Why did Eve Six ask about Reliant K on Twitter? The heartbreaking news of the day, front page of relevant. There you go. We did, and it was just a step in the dark. We didn't really have the answers, but but right. you, you hope for something for something to work. And then, lo and behold, that turned out to be the right move because Eve Six did actually see this post. They shared this post, the the post that we wrote about them online, and uh, and then he answered the question because the headline was "Why does Eve Six want to talk to Reliant K about chain smokers?" And he said this, I went on a hike with the Chainsmokers guy a while back. This was a tweet just to everybody. He was answering our question, but it was like open, you know, this was come, this is open swim tweet. Right. I went on a hike with the Chainsmokers guy a while back. He was very nice. He loved Eve 6 and Reliant K, but most of all, he loved the Reliant K song about Eve 6. And he played it for me in his car and he thought it was great. That is how he answered. That is the answer to the question. <laughs> to the relevant investigation. We got to the bottom of it. That's the heartbreaking news. <laughs> the heartbreaking news that people come to relevantmagazine.com for. And I think I deliver. And I feel pretty good about that, about making that kind of news. And then Eve Six shared a few more relevant posts on his timeline. So we got a few so more. So was he did saying, but hold E6 on, was bump. he saying, was he saying that uh, the Chainsmokers guy likes the Reliant K song and uh-huh. he thought it was great? Uh-huh. Like, it's not really great, but he thought it was great. Or was he like, it was it just sincere. a dry way of I him just, saying? It seems sincere. Okay, I just think okay, it's okay. funny I that the Chainsmokers is a big fan of Reliant K and Eve Six and was on a hike with Eve Six and said, do you, have you ever heard the Reliant K song about you and played it for him? That yeah. is hilarious to me. How like, do you think that happened? Like, I what, don't what, know. What's the connection? And also, if I like a song, like, like, oh, you should listen to this song. It's about your band. Let's listen to it in the car. I send that link. I don't want to. I don't like when people play a song for me because then they're watching me react to it, and I feel yeah, like yeah. I have to put on a little show, dude. That but is like, the like, worst. Don't, Chainsmokers guy, don't send them a link, Derek. I I know you've done this to your friends and peers. Don't just don't no, do this. It happens to me. Yeah, it is. What do you do with your eyes? We've talked about this on the podcast before. We've had so many artists come through our office and our studios. They want to play the new project for us. And it's me and the artist sitting in my office. We put the song on the speakers and we have to sit there for four and a half minutes. Where do you look? I look. Do you look at the floor? Do you make eye contact with the artist? Do you bob your head? What do you do? What if it's terrible? They're like they're looking at you for any sense of reaction now this is one of the reasons why i i enjoy this is one of the reasons why i like white people in the sense of this like you guys think about all of this stuff like man what do you look (laughs) at your eyes like do you how do you black people are totally different black people you got 30 seconds i know if a black person starts looking at their phone Mm -hmm. it's whack (laughs) like it's done like they're just like 
all right, yeah, bro. And then they're like, yeah, it's straight, bro. Like for real, for real, it's cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, how about the, how about them Lakers? Like it's like <laughs> <laughs> you don't give them the whole song. Thirty seconds. Ooh. I got the gist. You're good. Thank you. That's it. Or do you? Nah, give whole... I'll listen to the whole thing. Oh, okay, but okay. if it's not good, I probably will like. Uh, I'll clock out after a while, dude. And, been... and it's just like you just know, like it's like black people are very expressive. We don't really think about. You know, I've been does this in hurt the your car. feelings or not? I've been in the car with an artist. We were I was dropping him off at his hotel, wanted to play me some tracks, some demos that were on his phone. We're playing it in the car. They were not good. I didn't know what to say. Like, cause I don't want to lie to you or like pump you up and then, you know, like give you the impression like we're gonna put you on the cover because that's amazing. You know what I mean? Like I right. don't know what to say. I'm not your peer. I'm not your another artist. I'm not gonna tear yeah, down your work to yeah. your face. I'm just like, oh, cool. You know what I mean? I don't know what to do. It's very uncomfortable for me. So good good for Eve Six liking the song and wanting to connect with Reliant K afterwards. Because yeah. I could have gone do. very like, differently. The Six Reliant K collab could be just around the corner for all I know. I, I don't yeah. know if there's a, <laughs> if anybody wants that, but it seems sort of inevitable after the storm that we've created around this hey, whole drama. Chain Smokers produce it. It'll be great. Great track. Let's do it. All right. Well, that'll do it for Slices. Stay tuned. Up next, attorney, author, advocate, Rachel Denhollander joins us. listening to Michigander. The song is Let Down. Well, today's episode is brought to you by podcast creation platform, Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor yet, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There are custom tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and every major platform. The cool thing is you can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Well, Rachel Denhollander is a lawyer, author, former gymnast, and advocate for victims of sexual abuse. In 2016, uh, she found herself in the spotlight for being the first woman to speak out against a USA Gymnastics team doctor at the time. Because of her voice, hundreds of women came forward to speak out as well. Fast forward, uh, Rachel wrote about her story in a book called What is a Girl Worth? And it's been featured on CNN, PBS, Washington Post, New York Times, and countless other outlets. And she spends her time educating other lawyers about sexual abuse. She sat down with uh, very own Tyler Huckabee to talk about the kind of abuses uncovered in the Ravi Zacharias revelations and how the church must transform if it wants to see an end to those stories Here's our conversation with Rachel Denhollander. Hollander. 
Now, we're, we're speaking on the heels of another major revelation, and it feels like we get one of these, let's say, about once a quarter, where a, 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 a major one once a quarter, you can, if you go a little more smaller, yeah. you get you can talk about one every week or so of another major Christian institution in the U.S. that gets caught in one of these scandals. Is why, what is it, and this is maybe an impossible question, but what is it about these Christian institutions that seems to just invite this? these sorts of scandals why does this keep why can't we figure this out yeah so i think there's really two parts to that there are kind of two sides to that coin um the first is that you know sexual abuse is far more prominent than we want to acknowledge in our culture um this is not just a christian problem it's not just a church problem uh, it's not just an athletic problem this is a problem that spans all socioeconomic barriers it spans all types of institutions um, and I don't think we've really grappled yet with really the epidemic levels that we have of sexual abuse um, in society. That being said, we also know that uh, that there are some hallmarks for why abusers are able to abuse for so long, particularly in Christian organizations. So here are a couple of things we know about abusers. We know that around 90% of abusers identify, self-identify as religious or very religious. Uh, that means they can blend in very well with religious communities. There is a very famous psychologist, Anna Salter, who has done some incredible work on delving into the mind of an abuser and a predator and how they operate. Uh, and one thing that came out in her research was, was that abusers actually do target faith communities. And they target faith communities because our misuse and misunderstanding of our own theologies, uh, very commonly the theologies of forgiveness, of justice, uh, our ideas of what it means to not gossip or to be unified, uh, and our idea of under and understanding of authority. Those are often theologies that, while found in scripture, are twisted and weaponized and very misunderstood in faith circles, uh, and it creates the perfect dynamic for an abuser. Uh, and so we do see a lot of places where abusers are targeting faith communities, and that's something, again, that we really haven't wrestled with. Um, we have a big misunderstanding in our faith communities um, of what abusers look like uh, and of what makes a person a wolf or a sheep. Um, you know, you, we often hear uh, the, the passage of scripture uh, about wolves in sheep's clothing, but more often than not, that wolf is really identified to be, when you, when you hear someone preach on that passage, um, they, they call a wolf somebody who's obviously not in the faith community. The examples they use of what a wolf looks like, it's somebody who's not actually looking like a Christian, but that's not what scripture tells us. Scripture tells us a wolf in sheep's clothing is somebody who looks like a sheep, who talks like a sheep, who is masquerading as a sheep, but they're deadly. Um, and we really haven't wrestled with that yet. Um, you know, and, and our lack of willingness to submit to outside accountability, our misunderstanding of theology, it really creates these situations, not only where abusers can target these communities, but where they can flourish in them. So what do we need to, you're, you're talking about some misunderstandings of certain theology that have invited these sorts of things in and protect abusers within the midst of Christian institutions. Where, what are some of the things that we need to correct that can help build up some walls to hopefully keep these wolves out? We could talk about this uh, for hours because it is a very, it is very complex, uh, but we do see some patterns and some themes emerging. Um, and I think one of the things we really have to grapple with is behind our actions are our ideas, our belief systems. Uh, if those belief systems are not accurate, our actions aren't going to be either. And right now we're seeing a lot of focus on actions. Make sure your child protection policy is right. What are your nursery guidelines? Uh, you know, and those things are important. Of course, we need good child protection policy, uh, but the policies are only as good as the people enforcing it. 
and only as good as their understanding of it. So we really have to start with our ideas. Uh, and here's where, again, we're finding a lot of misuse of, uh, of our theology. Oftentimes, justice and forgiveness is in practicality, uh, really taught and, and acted upon as if they're dichotomous, as if they're opposed to each other. If you truly forgive, you won't pursue justice. If you truly forgive, you will not talk about this. Um, you know, and so they're pitted against each other when in reality, justice and forgiveness are found both in the character of God and they're dependent upon each other. Christianity is the only framework that provides us a mechanism for forgiveness because justice is always meted out. That's our doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. We don't understand our theology. Not really. And we don't apply it well at all when it comes to issues of justice in the church. Um, and so that's really a threshold issue uh, because when victims come forward and they are desiring to speak up, they're immediately pitted as bitter, angry, um, you know, vengeful people if they're looking to pursue any kind of justice or to make what happened known to them. Uh, we have a massive misunderstanding of abuse and abusive dynamics. And this comes in part because of our under misunderstanding of authority. Uh, you know, typically what we see in Christian circles is we see the very right articulation of sola scriptura, the sufficiency of scripture. Um, but we apply that very differently in abusive realms than we apply it in other schools of thought. So, for example, I believe in sola scriptura. I also don't think if I have a heart condition that my surgeon has to be a Christian to understand how my heart works. Um, you know, I don't believe that, uh, you know, every, every single bit of knowledge that exists or, or wisdom that exists is contained in the scriptures. Now, that's our plumb line. That's God's specific revelation that all natural revelation uh, is measured against. Absolutely. Um, but what that has created in our churches uh, is a extreme reticence to listen to experts on abuse and trauma. So we don't really listen to psychologists very often. We certainly don't uh, accept outside help and accountability when it comes to sifting through allegations of abuse or knowing how to respond to it. Um, and again, these are very complex dynamics. And if you don't have someone who is trained to really be able to sift through the evidence to understand the dynamics of abuse, you're never even going to get to the truth. But because of our misapplication and misunderstanding of what it means to hold to the doctrine of sola scriptura and to, and to place our authority on scripture, because of that misunderstanding, we've cut ourselves off uh, from, from so much help and accountability um, that as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid of. I think you, we're going to, there's going to be people who are going to be reading this, listening to this, and, and they want to do the right thing. They want to create an environment within their communities there where somebody who is a, is a victim has had something happen, feels safe coming forward and telling the story, but they don't really know where to start because it, it seems like we're all just kind of copying what's come before. And what's come before has obviously been very, wrong. has not made victims <laughs> feel safe wrong. coming forward. So where, what can people who want to do a better job, especially people in positions of leadership, what can they do? You know, the most important thing that we can do uh, and that we need to examine is what we message because victims are always watching. Victims and perpetrators are both always watching. Perpetrators mm. are highly, highly skilled predators. They look for dynamics that are going to ensure that if anybody ever speaks up, they won't be believed. So they look for places that miswield, that, that wield improperly those concepts of authority, those concepts of justice and forgiveness. They look for places that don't understand trauma and abusive dynamics that aren't going to bring in outside accountability and outside help. Perpetrators look for those dynamics. And victims also look for those dynamics. They watch how we talk about issues of abuse, and they know that's what they would think about me. If this leader is talking about or, or not even bothering to talk about 
the victims who have come forward this way, if they're not even bothering to push for or ask for accountability, if they don't see the need for independent counsel, that's what they would think about me. And one of the things that came out of the Miller and Martin report is that that's exactly what happened to so many of the women who are abused by Ravi. They watched what happened to Lorianne when she spoke up and they said, nobody cares. Nobody even cares. And if they did that to her, that's what they're going to do to me. So how we talk about abuse and abusive dynamics, how it is preached on, uh, how it is communicated on our social media platforms, the priority and emphasis we place upon it in our ministries, um, that really is the most critical dynamic. That's what signals to abusers, you're not going to be safe here. And if you abuse, we're going to defend the sheep. That's also what signals to victims, they actually understand and I'm safe to speak up. So what we communicate really is the most important thing that we can do. That, of course, requires knowledge. Um, you know, so again, it is, it is absolutely critical that we start really grappling with the realities of abuse and abusive dynamics, with our theology of authority, our theology of forgiveness, and start delving into where we have gotten this so wrong. Do you think that there is, that there's probably, there's obviously multifarious reasons that it's not discussed more than it is, uh, in from everything from wanting to protect the unity of the church, the unity of the church to just not really knowing it's not something they don't cover this in seminary, right? That we're talking about a, oh, goodness, a no. deep systemic <laughs> issue. Like a lot of these guys, you probably wouldn't want them talking about sexual abuse from the pulpit because they don't know what to say. So you're, you're taught, this is where people like you and your work can come in and help Christian organizations maybe get their heads around not only the scope of the problem, but what solutions might look like. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. There's there's little to no training on mm. abuse and abusive dynamics in the church, little to no training on how our theology interweaves with issues of justice. Uh, and so, yes, exactly. Before you know, We've got to look at our ideas, but before you start spouting off about ideas, you better make sure your ideas are right. <laughs> um, and so we do. We, again, we need a very dedicated level of intentionality uh, in, in learning what we need to learn, in confronting the strongholds we need to confront, in becoming educated, um, you know, and it, it really should be part and parcel of what shepherding and eldership looks like. You know, the, the role of the shepherd is to protect from the wolves. So you better understand abuse and abusive dynamics if you're going to be d- being able to identify what, who a wolf is. Um, you are supposed to be caring for and protecting the sheep. Um, you're supposed to be pointing them to Christ. And when you have so much of your congregation that is suffering just incredible, incredibly deep wounds, and you're not prepared to explain to them why the gospel is a refuge, and you don't understand what they're facing, you cannot fulfill your role as a shepherd. And anybody who's been in ministry, especially pastoral ministry, knows a significant portion of that ministry is really more counseling. Marriages that are in crisis, parents that are trying to figure out what to do, individuals who are suffering uh, significant mental health issues or um, crises of the faith. A counselor's role is a significant part of what a a pastor does. Um, And and there are certain denominations that understand that a little bit better, but we really Mm -hmm. have a lot of a preacher-pastor model in America, where the pastor's just, he's the guy that gets up and he gives this amazing sermon. Um, but it really, the, what the scripture portrays is a shepherd pastor model that includes the gift of public teaching, but isn't defined by the gift of public teaching. Um, and so most pastors are very ill-equipped to actually do the shepherding. And if you're going to be in ministry to the vast majority of your flock, you actually do have to understand these things because most of the time, statistically, when you have somebody who is in some type of mental health crisis, there's some level of trauma in the background. When you have marriages 
there is statistically often either trauma in one or the other spouses or both spouses background or trauma happening in the marriage. Trauma really is at at the root of a lot of what pastors have to deal with from a shepherding standpoint, but because they haven't been trained to see it, they don't even recognize they're dealing with trauma dynamics. You have Hmm. to be able to see it before you can address it. Um, I want to pivot and talk just a little bit about people who are hearing this, who, who maybe feel like they, they want to come forward about something. They have some story they need to tell men and women, something that I observed a lot of, I'm sure you've seen a lot of, especially when, when Lorianne Thompson came forward with this, uh, this issue of timing, like, well, now's not the right time. It's a sensitive time for the ministry. A man just died. That's, and I'm, and I would imagine, I, I don't know, but I would imagine this, this is also came up when you came forward with your statement about Larry Nasser, for people who who um who are feeling that pressure even just internally let alone externally where does the time does the timing question come into play at all it absolutely does uh, and again this is something we don't understand well because we don't understand trauma and abuse and abusive dynamics well um, most victims cannot identify or articulate the full extent of their abuse statistically, Mm -hmm. either because they were abused for so long that their perception of normal has completely shifted uh, or because they froze or dissociated during the time of their abuse. So their ability to put words to what they've experienced often isn't there until a very long time after the abuse, especially for longstanding abuse uh, or children or grownups who come from a severe trauma background uh, because their perception of what's normal is just gone. Um, So the ability to articulate it often isn't there for years. The average age of disclosure for someone who has experienced uh, childhood sexual abuse, depending on the study you look look at, is anywhere between late 30s and early 40s. For men, it can be even later into the 50s. Uh, So part of what we just need to understand is delayed disclosures are the norm. They're not the exception. And they're the norm for a lot of reasons. One, again, because most of the time, the ability to articulate it isn't there uh, because of the intense shame that accompanies that abuse and because victims know what they're facing when they come forward. You know, the, the cruel irony uh, when a victim speaks up is the immediate response is she's in it, he or she is in it for money, they're in it for attention, they're trying to destroy a good person. If this was really true, why did you take so long? You are demonstrating right now why I took so long. Because I knew you were going to do this to me, uh, you know, and so we, it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy, but we don't see it. Um, and so we, we have to push, start pushing back just even on those dynamics, uh, but just on, a, again, an intensely practical level, you know, out of every 300 rapes reported to the police, only about six result in uh, any kind of criminal charges being levied. And whether or not those charges are anywhere near the level of the offense that was actually committed uh, is an even harder bar to meet. So only six out of every 300 result in criminal charges. Only five out of every 300 result in conviction or jail time. And according to the Department of Justice, the federal justice statistics, the average sentence for a sexual offender, including child sex offenders, is less time served than the average sentence for possession of a controlled substance. You can literally have weed on you and spend more time in jail than you will spend if you rape a child. And that's because our justice system, our evidentiary codes, our statute of limitations, our detectives, our prosecutors are not only not prepared to handle those things, but oftentimes approach them in ways that are deeply, deeply damaging to survivors. Um, And so the victims know this. They know what they're facing when they come forward. Um, And so my counsel to victims and to survivors Uh, is really that it has to be a very personal decision Um, because there are survivors that don't survive the reporting process. 
it really can be life and death. It is an incredibly traumatic process to undergo. Um, and so I, I don't think there is a one size fits all. If you are in the position to be able to report, absolutely do so. There are sometimes intermediary options in between reporting. Some survivors I work with will make a statement to the police, but tell them they're not in the position to pursue charges right now. That at least leaves a breadcrumb. Um, so there are some intermediate options. Um, but it is something that has to be weighed very carefully because the trauma of undergoing that process is extreme. I want to take a step back. And this is a, a, a little bit of a, uh, well, I'll, I'll be curious to get your reaction to this based on your your research and your expertise. Um, I'm sure you saw, I know for a fact, you saw a lot of the chatter that came out in the immediate wake of this report was some uh, Christian men, some of them very prominent within the church, uh, taking this there, but for the grace of God, go all of us. That was like the big takeaway is we, I, I could, it could happen to any one of us at any time. Can you just kind of give me your like instinctual, what's, what's your reaction to that take? Cause it's very popular. <laughs> you know, the way it's being used is really a way to minimize the depth of what has taken place. You know, I, and again, I think this is one area where you see theological concepts that are twisted uh, and wielded very wrongly, um, you know, it, and you see this with sin leveling too. Is it, could, could any of us become that type of person? Yes, technically any of us could become that type of person. But that is a normalizing statement to use it the way it's being used in the context it's being used really normalizes sexual abuse. I'm one step away from becoming a serial predator. Brother, if you are one step away from becoming a serial predator, you've got other problems. Um, you know, and it is, it is a way to emotionally identify with the perpetrator instead of with the victim. Uh, you know, statistically, the more correct response would be there, but for the grace of God, go I in reference to the victims. That could have been me. Um, you know, so it, it is, it is an emotional identification with the perpetrator, whether or not it's intended to be. It is used in a way that minimizes uh, and, and sin levels uh, to, to act as though this was an almost normal type of behavior. Everybody's just on the cusp. Uh, and the message that that sends uh, to survivors and perpetrators uh, is that abuse and abusive dynamics isn't well understood and that the people around them are not safe because it is not well understood. Um, you know, and again, it, it, I think it should legitimately raise the question, why do we think sexual predation is so normal that everybody's just barely on the cusp of it? That's not normal behavior. You've been in this fight. I know you've 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 ate, slept, and breathed this whole thing for a long time now. At some at some personal cost to you and your husband, I know too. Um, do you have any hope that things are going to get? Do you see the tide turning on this issue? Yes and no. Uh, I wish I could. I wish I could give more confidence in that than I can give right now. And this is why, and this is, that's a question I get asked all the time in athletic context, university context, uh, because we have this perception after the Nasser case and after the Me Too movement uh, that you just put a tweet out there with a hashtag and you can basically destroy a man's life. That is not how it works. By and large, uh, we have seen zero shift in our conviction and prosecution rates. Uh, our legal system is so far behind where it needs to be and the training that it needs to have. There's been no shift whatsoever uh, in our legal system. In our, um, in our relationships and in our communities, really what we have to get to the point of seeing is a shift in how the community responds when the abuse is in its own community. When it's in your own community, when it would cost to care, are you able to see clearly? 
Are you able to push for the right things? Um, and we are, we are seeing a slight shift, but most of the time that shift is coming in the types of cases we see right now with RZIM, where it is years down the road. Uh, it's coming from a grassroots base and it's coming after so much damage has been done. Uh, and so the, the shift is very, very slight. Um, again, I think we need to be, you know, examining our political communities. How are we responding when somebody in our political community uh, is accused of abuse? Does it matter enough for us to say this person who has been credibly accused uh, or a, a subject of credible allegations for felony level sexual assault probably should not be entrusted with this type of authority? Uh, does it matter enough to us? Um, you know, and, and really starting to wrestle with what we, how we will respond when it would cost us to care what we will do when it would cost, when it's in our own community. That's really the plumb line, the measuring stick for how far we've come. Based on that measuring stick, we have not come very far. That was Rachel Denhollander. Check out her book, What is a Girl Worth? Wherever you get your books. Stay tuned. Up next, it's your feedback. You're listening to Tiana Major 9 and Earth Gang. This song is on repeat for me. Collide. It's from the Queen and Slim soundtrack. All right, well, it's time for your feedback. Last week, we asked you, I don't know why we were talking about this, but we got talking about like the old MySpace, AIM, AIM, uh, AOL, early message chat rooms, early internet. We wanted to know your usernames because we all had embarrassed when we were little. We had embarrassing first usernames. Uh, so that's that's the question of the week. We want to know your first MySpace aim username. You hit us up on Twitter at Relevant Podcast, and you also posted on the episode post on Relevance Instagram page. Here are a few of our favorites. Oh, this one. I love this one from Kyle. This guy was a man after my own heart. He, too, <laughs> liked a record label called Drive Through Records, which was home to bands like New Found Glory and The Starting Line and a lot of uh, cheesy kind of early aughts emo and pop punk. Uh, and Kyle's AM screen name was Drive Through Rex 07. Good for you, Kyle. Repping your favorite Drive Through Records 07. Oh, God, yeah, God, Drive Through Rex 07. Good for you, Kyle. My man, Michael Tucker. Said I went total '90s youth group with Soul Harvester two four seven. That doesn't sound like a youth group to me, man. That sounds like a video game villain. It's <laughs> Soul <laughs> Harvester. Like, that sounds like a sweet metal Soul band. Harvester. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's the Marvel is, villain for Avengers twelve. Uh, I love this from Whitney. Uh, hers was pure NRG rocks my socks off. She says she randomly found a CD at the local family Christian bookstore and became very obsessed with the teen Christian pop group Pure NRG, and so much so that she I gave remember him Pure her, her NRG. Name. Good, they good were you, they buddy. were like a like a boy band knockoff Christian radio knockoff. Uh, Jonathan McCoy said his aim name was Kid in the House because he was a kid in the house. 
Pretty good. <laughs> and then he said his MySpace name was XX underscore rhymes with you. It was a reference to a Blood Brothers song. I love the ones that like there's so, like almost everybody uses a reference to a song or a band yeah. that they love. It was like it's a great. band or like a sports team. That was, that was the move, too. though. Nothing told you more about some somebody or told you more about yourself than the music, whatever song you were into at the moment. That, that was that was totally the aim move. In college, I couldn't post those uh, as my name. They'd be pretty bad. <laughs> Taylor Lyle said uh, his his first name was Tall Dude eighty four. Because he's eight, he's he's six foot seven, and he was born in 1984. So tall sure. dude, 84. So there you go. <laughs> Jorge De La Cruz says his aim was bad. Jorge nine eleven. Wow, that Ooh. is uh, that's that's <laughs> tough. That is tough. Kristen Hoover said on aim she was get over it two four four one after the amazing OK Go song. Get over it. But she said I also remember being tired of all the whining that happened on aim. So get over it. <laughs> Two four four one. Double you, Kristen Hoover. Yeah, keeping everybody in line. Yeah, good job. <laughs> it's like my uh, my my Xbox username is Narls Barkley. I mean, yeah, I, I, still, when I signed up, hanging, I love Narls yeah, Barkley. Yeah, so still hanging strong. You, you know, Dustin Blero said his original one was Notorious Bulky. Not notorious BID, but notorious bulky. He said I was a chubby fullback in elementary and middle school, so bulky was my nickname. I also like Biggie, so played off the two. Oh, there you notorious go. I like it. Bulky. I'm with it. I'm with it. Sarah Sh- Sarah Shotsiek says uh, hers was L- Lil Hobbit '88 because she was obsessed with Lord of the Rings and still is. Um, <laughs> I, I listen. Any Tolkien inspired screen name is a huge red flag for me. I'm sorry. I just just don't go there. <laughs> Uh, okay, Evan Penn. <laughs> Evan Penn's his aim name was the E Man. His name's Evan. The E Man Five takes a break. That was his. The wow. E Man Five takes a break because he said I wanted the ladies to know I was chill and cool. Sixth I'm grade sure, Ev I'm was sure. crushing it with the ladies. That's I'm what sure Evan that's said. what how that translated to everyone who <laughs> came across it in the wild. E Man. Yeah, so there's a lot more that came from. Go check them out on uh, on Twitter. Okay, it's time for this week's editorial question of the week. Early in the show, Derek talked about uh, you know all the people who lost all the lost their shirts on GameStop. Basically, got us thinking about the poor financial decisions we've all made from time to time. Mm-hmm. The 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 grab for quick and easy money has has allured many a college student among us you know i remember in college hey i remember in college uh, guys on my wing were going hard like with the mlm thing of selling phone cards yep. the office even made fun of it like michael fell prey to to the pyramid scheme of selling phone cards kids at oru were doing it and you know you had to buy in and buy a license also hey, so I that, damn way bro there you go. Hey, right. any babies. Dude, so we right, want to know. Come. All right, here's one scam, and I haven't respected the heck out of this guy's game. I was at a gas station one time, filling up, and this guy walks over. He's like, hey, man, I'm in a real jam. I only need like $10 for gas so that I get to my destination. Is there any way you help me out? I'm like, you know what, man? Here, you know, here you go. Game 10 bucks. I go in to go buy a big gulp. He is using the $10 right there to buy lottery tickets. I look at him, and he just kind of shrugs his shoulders like, eh. Hey, you know what I was like? I respect the game because I wouldn't have given you $10 for lottery tickets. But- <laughs> Jesse, that happened to me before, bro. That happened to me, bro. Like, no lie. Like, this girl walks over to me and she, it, so it was a guy and a girl that was running yeah. the scam, though. And the girl walks up to me and she's like, oh my God, I'm trapped. I just need $10 to get whatever. And she, I give her the money 
And this guy walks right past her. She jumps in a car and they just drive off. Yeah, it's and, like, and I'm what? like what? I looked right at the guy. I looked right at the guy and go, just let you know, if you win, half of it's mine. That's, that should be established right now. I respected the game though. But anyway, I'm sure a lot of people have best games. The worst, the worst is when you're on like a first date or early date and that happens. They come up to you, you and your date yeah. and they do this whole thing and you know that this is a grift and you're not going to do it. But then you look like the jerk to yeah. this girl you're trying to impress. So you're sitting there going, do I fall for their grift? Cause I know that they're grifting or do I look like, you know, I'm heartless right. to, yeah, this, yeah. to this girl. Cause that happened to me. <laughs> yeah. And I did not give them money and it did not work out with the girl. So just ah! FYI. <laughs> give so. the money. Give the money. Yeah. yeah. What's the oh, date man. worth? What's a good date worth? To you? <laughs> hey, we are not going to be an unwise couple. This is not going to work if we're just giving money to all the grifters. All right. Anyway, small price right, so today for a happy date. Hit us up on Twitter at Rolling Podcast and tell us the 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 thing you've done where you lost your money, the thing you thought would be the score and it didn't work out. Was it MLM? Was it stocks? Was it something else? Tell us your bad beat story. All right. Well, many thanks to Rachel Denhollander for joining us. Make sure to check out her book, What Is a Girl Worth, wherever you get your books. And, you know, we're not sensationalizing it, but we'll continue covering it as we need to. You can read more about the Robbie Zacharias situation and, you know, kind of how the church is moving forward. Uh, we'll be covering it over at relevantmagazine.com. Stay tuned. Well, on that note, we'll wrap it up. I'm Cameron Strang. I'm Justin Carey. I'm Derek Miner. I'm Tyler Huckabee. We'll see you on Friday. Have a good week, everyone. listening to the relevant podcast check out our features interviews and news updates every day at relevantmagazine.com and make sure to follow relevant on facebook twitter and instagram for the latest for more great podcasts browse the shows on the relevant podcast network which you can find at our site and while you're there don't miss the all-new era of relevant magazine a new issue releases every other month at relevantmagazine.com You're wearing a blazer with flannel sweatpants, if any pants at all. Relevant Podcast Network. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.